Welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Baseball Buds Podcast. It has been far too long, a few months, since we've last talked to you guys, but for good reason. Matt got married, he went on a honeymoon, we both tore our labrums, a lot of fun stuff happening, but let's bring in Matt. Matt, how are you doing? How was your honeymoon? What was the highlight? You know, I think kind of to start us off, I think without fail now, this is, I want to say our third year doing this. We always have a life event that just stops us middle of August. Just derails us. Completely derails <laughs> us. We were doing so incredible this year. I think we may have missed one or two weeks uh, leading into the August stretch. And then I had to go get married. You know, I had to go on the honeymoon. Um, then we came back and, and life is chaotic, as you had mentioned. But um, best highlight for the honeymoon, I think, was just undoubtedly being back in Athens. Um, for those of you listening that may not know me or may not know me that well, this is the second time I've gone to Greece. Absolutely love Athens. Um, probably my favorite city on the planet. Now, I haven't traveled as much as some of you. So, you know, outside of America, I think Athens is the only major city I've actually been to. But uh, really enjoyed that. Um, really enjoyed coming home. Very different perspective than the last time I, I traveled uh, to Europe, which I didn't want to come home. Yeah. And this time I was very excited to come home and, and get life going. And, you know, sometimes I think they uh, that notion of be careful what you wish for is very true. Because we got home and we've been nonstop ever since. Um, but things are starting to slow down a little bit. We're back today recording. Um, you know, it's off-season baseball. We have a, a lot to catch you guys up on. And uh, we have a lot to dive into from what happened, I guess, in the middle of August up until now. Yeah, so let's let's talk about it. So since we last left off with you guys, we were breaking down each division, the prospect risers, fallers. We left off with the AL East to be the remaining division that we need to talk about. But there's a lot of prospects we like on the Red Sox, Yankees, Orioles, that there's just not enough time for us to cover it. So our plan here is we're going to break down the Orioles. But since the season is over, we are going to break down some of the players that we like that jumped into our top 20, our top 50, top 100, kind of our tier one, twos, and threes that really stood out for each of us. We'll break down some players that started off really hot that were drafted this year. And then lastly, we'll go over uh, some players that really stuck out to us in the Dominican Summer League. So with that being said, let's just jump right into it. Um, and let's go into our first tier one breakout that was outside of your top 20 that is now inside of your top 20. Yeah, and that for me, again, with the preface that we've tried to leave out AL East. Oh, um, yes, yes. Right? Like I, that part. I think for, for both of us, it would have been Caminero here at one. Um, we will talk about him when we talk about the race system, so we don't want to interject that now. So for me, it's Colt Heath. Um, I mean, we kind of started watching him, I want to say, in May, and we just watched the ascension throughout the entirety of the season, and it was, it was pretty incredible. Uh, double A, 59 games, triple A, 67 games. He had a 507 at-bats across both levels. Had a great 306 average. Showcased the power at 27 home runs. 101 RBI, so he was really able to drive in those base runners. Uh, only three stolen bases, so you're not getting a power-speed uh, combo here. This is a, this is a slugger. Uh, 60 walks to 121 strikeouts. I think that's fine because you are looking at the slugger approach here. And I think probably about in July, you and I had the conversation that we would not be surprised if he got brought up, and he didn't, clearly protecting that rookie eligibility for the 2024 season. I was surprised in September when they didn't bring him up and give him a look. They clearly are looking to bring him into camp next year and have him compete. 
Um, very, very nice season, a huge emergence. If I remember correctly, a fourth or fifth round pick back in 2020, if I'm correct, we will have to, uh, kind of fifth stack round correct pick that. in 2020 in yep. COVID. So he was the last round. Well, and you know, there's a couple other players that we'll talk about later, but that 2020 draft, you had a lot of these young high school talents like the Heath, like Kobe Mayo, uh, get drafted in that fourth and fifth round. I think in large part because they didn't get to showcase a lot of their talents. And I think what we're seeing from Colt Heath here is he probably should have been a first round high school pick if not a second-round pick. Um, we're talking about a perennial top 10 third baseman, in my opinion. And this season kind of just showcased what we can look forward to moving forward at the major league level. Yeah, the one thing I was surprised by was his power. I knew he would have the average 306 over the course of the season, but he hit 27 home runs, which was a welcome surprise for me. And I picked him up in our Dynasty League. Um, and the thing that had me worried was he kind of slumped as soon as he got to triple a and then as soon as i can't remember if it was august or september now but what he got on a roll and like tore off like four or five home runs within like a f 10 game stretch and i was like oh man he's figured out triple a it's only a matter of time before he gets that cup of coffee for the last week or two of the season but they never did it which was surprising to me because you know why not at that point you're not gonna burn his rookie eligibility but you know, it's the Detroit Tigers. They also drafted Max Clark over Wyatt Langford. So what do I know? Well, and um, <laughs> not only did they draft Max Clark over Wyatt Langford, they drafted Max Clark over Walker Jenkins, too, who, you know, and we'll get to this yeah. later on. Jenkins isn't someone that we're going to talk about on the show today, um, but arguably might actually end up being better than Wyatt Langford when you talk about the all-around game. And they chose a player over both of them. Um, concerning, but the last thing I'll say about Heath is, you know, he's a left-handed bat that's going to fit Comerica a little bit better than Torkelson's issue from the right side. And I am excited to see that power showcase. I think we're going to see a lot of extra base hits from him next year. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the power translates to more of a pitcher-friendly environment there in Detroit. But I am happier that he's from the left side of the plate than the right side of the plate. Yeah, it'll be exciting to see him come up regardless whether it's opening day. I do think we see him at some point next year. Let's move on to my top um, tier one breakout into the top 20, and that's going to be Cade Horton, starting pitcher for the Chicago Cubs. He was a top draft pick last year. He went seventh overall. Seventh overall. Well, can't talk tonight. I guess shaking off a little bit of rust, but this year he went from low A to high A to double A, all maintaining an ERA under three, 2.65 on the year in 88 and a third innings pitch. But here's the part that I like the most. 117 strikeouts to 27 walks. The command is there an exactly 1.0 whip. Love to see that. He stuck out to me as somebody who's potentially an ace in the making. And there was a lot of concerns from you and me, Matt, because he was a converted positional player to a pitcher the year he was um, drafted. And he had the arm, but did he have the command? Did he have the secondary stuff? And he showcased it this year. And if anything, that makes me think his ceiling's even higher because in his first year of really truly learning how to be a pitcher, he excelled um, all the way to double A. So I really like what I see from Cade Horton. I don't have my top 100 draft or top 100, but he's definitely in the 10 to 20 range for me. Um, I'll let you talk on him, Matt, while I find my official ranking on him. Yeah, I have Cade Horton right below Marcelo Meyer, um, sandwiched in between Ethan Salas. 
He is my number two pitcher on the board behind Paul Skeens. <clears throat> now, mind you, Yamamoto is not on this list for top 100 being universal prospect. I think Yamamoto would be my number one pitcher. Uh, but high praise for Horton. I mean, you, you talked on it a little bit. Coming out of Oklahoma, he had only pitched one season in the 2022 season. Didn't showcase a lot of um, production in regards to quality. He had a 4.86 ERA at Oklahoma. He had 14 games. 11 of those games, he had started only 53 innings. So coming into this season, you and I, like you said, had question marks. And I mean, he absolutely blew us away. Only 88 innings. So there is that concern that we're going to see Horton over the next couple of years build up. I would expect next year, 120 innings, possibly. Um, they may push him to 130, possibly a bullpen arm for the Cubs if they're in the race next year where they can continue to utilize him, get him some pedigree. Uh, and he's close, as you kind of mentioned. I mean, double A, he only had six games this year, but he had a 2.67 ERA, 27 innings, flashed 31 strikeouts at double A. I think with the metrics that we're seeing, especially on social media right now from Horton, um, we're talking about a possible elite level arm. The question mark is, can the durability stay there because he doesn't have the innings under his belt over the last five, six, seven years? That's my question mark. You could also argue that that's a massive benefit for him, that his arm is more fresh. I think this will be a great showcase to show us how does that translation work when you go from position to dominantly um, starting pitching every five days. I tracked him all season, and every time I would look, I would expect a blow up. And worst case scenario, he was three and a third, four runs, four and a third, two runs, you know, eight strikeouts, six strikeouts. He just continued to dominate at every level he had. And I, I think as he continues to develop his stamina at the major league level, um, and at the minor league level, for that matter, we're going to start to see a pitcher that gets through the first and second turn very effectively, very quickly with plus strikeout things. And that's an elite level arm for fantasy baseball. Yeah, I'm excited to see what he has. I also have him after Marcelo Meyer at number 12, right ahead of Kobe Mayo, who's at 13. So that's where I have him. He's also my second pitcher behind Paul Skeens and one ahead of Jacob Mizorowski. Um, now let's break it down. Our favorites from our tier two prospects that jumped into our top 50 that were outside. Matt, I'll let you take it away with your first one. Yeah. And I, I put Jet Williams as my tier two breakout. Um, I, I think what we're going to see from him next year is going to be a continual development of the average I think the power will also uptick, but he is limited in stature. Um, you know, I, I joke about that often that I, I do profile players based, based off their height and their weight classifications. Jet Williams really falls into that for me, though, because you had a very nice season slash line. 79 games at A ball, 36 games at high A, and then six games at double A this season for a total of 442 at-bats. Hit 262, uh, so not a great average, but really showcasing that 14 home run power and 51 stolen bases. But this is where I got really excited about looking at the stat line. 104 walks to 118 strikeouts. He's putting himself on base. And I think that's really going to be the calling card for Jet Williams. I think absolute best case scenario, you're looking at someone like Jose Altuve with a little less power because you don't have the Crawford boxes. I think worst case scenario, you're looking at a platoon player that's going to play second, third, shortstop, possibly filling it outfield for the New York Mets. And again, there is a problem. There's a log jam. You have Acuna there as well now after the trade from Max Scherzer. So he's going to be fighting for that second base job. And I think the name of Acuna is going to make it a little more difficult for him. So a lot to like from what Jet Williams did this year. What I'm seeing is a uh, 10 to 20 home run player in his prime 
with that 30 to 50 stolen base ability, maybe even upticking a little bit more, but a guy that's definitely going to help, help in the counting stats, getting on base, stealing those bases, and especially getting those walks. Yeah, the one thing I'll say on Jeff Williams is he is a little bit more power than I thought he would. I projected him as a 5 to 10 home run, so seeing him hit 13 across the levels he played with uh, low A and uh, double A, um, it was, or uh, low A and high A, I should say, it was a pleasant surprise for me. So I love to see the progression. And he is only 19, so he doesn't have much frame, but you can still add a little bit of muscle on at that age. Well, and, and lastly, you know, we talk about this often, videos on social media for the minor league affiliates, they're, they're not the best. But when Jet hits the ball, you can see the emphasis he has in his swing. Um, and that's something I'm really looking for now, that Corbin Carroll approach that I think uh, a few in the industry have really highlighted, where some guys just have it. And I've only been to one AAA game in the last couple of years, but I saw that with uh, Tyler Soderstrom, very different body profile. But you could just tell he was the best player on the field. You could tell when he hit the ball with this swing that he's a professional. And what I've seen from Jet Williams, at least in the videos, is he's a professional. He's a major leaguer. Now that stature may come to negatively impact him at the major league level, but right now he's showcasing a really good profile. Yeah, it'll be exciting to see whenever the Mets commit the Mets commit to a full rebuild. My tier two breakout that goes into the top fifty is Abimelech Ortiz, the Rangers first base slash DH, however you want to call him. Could be an outfielder depending on who you talk to. But I really loved how much he broke out this year with his power. He went from low A with 29 games to high in 80 games, 391 at-bats. Um, he hit 33 home runs. Last I checked, he was leading the, all of the minors. I don't have it up in front of me. Matt, maybe you can look to see if he finished the year with the most home runs in the minors. But whenever that power pops like that and you have a 294 average, I love to see it. The one knock I'll give him is he had one stolen base, so he's not going to run for you. He gets a 30-grade run on MLB Pipeline on a 20-80 to 80 grade scale. That must might be one of the lowest grades I've ever seen on any five tools. Um, he doesn't walk as much, but his strikeout rate's not terrible, but it's not the greatest. 129 strikeouts to 49 walks, but, man, you can't deny the power and... I don't think he'll be a 300 hitter when he makes it to the majors, but I could definitely see him hitting at least 250 to 260 and have decent pop as soon as he makes the majors. Yeah, I mean, we loved Ortiz all season. We've kind of tracked him and uh, and watched his progression. We continue to wait for that opportunity where he would slip, and I think we're bought in. Uh, at this point, you have, you have what we would probably put a 70-grade power on him, pushing 80. I mean, this is going to be a designated hitter, in my opinion, the major league level. Uh, this is going to be a professional hitter. Strikeouts are a bit of a concern, but we have an individual a little bit later that's even more of a concern. So I think that just comes with some of these younger players that have that prodigious power. And Ortiz at 129 in the season, not really the, as bad as it is for other players. Um, but yes, he did tie for major league, excuse me, minor league leader in home runs with uh, Luke and Baker, Bobby Dahlbeck, Weston Wilson, uh, Wilson 29, Dahlbeck 28, you know, former prospect, and then Luke and Baker, who may or may not get his opportunity in St. Louis, all with 33 home runs. Uh, the only way this could be incorrect is if uh, the MILB tracker not accounting for uh, cross level and that's something we have had issues with all year but shout out to the MILB tracker we have enjoyed you all season you've made uh, our research a little bit easier 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's now go into our tier three breakouts. These are players who were outside of the top 100 coming into the year and now have hit our top 100. Some players that were ranking outside of our top 50, but into our top 100. Who's a name that has made your list, Matt? Yeah, for me, it's Thomas Segesi, and I have taken a long time to come around on Segesi. Wasn't really anything I thought more than a utility, possible journeyman while with the Rangers organization. And after this season, being traded to St. Louis, I just can't ignore the numbers. I can't ignore the production. Um, 126 games at AA, 13 at AAA. Again, was in both organizations, the Rangers and the Cardinals this season. 555 at-bats with a 306 average. 26 home runs, 111 RBIs, 12 stolen bases, 52 walks to 144 strikeouts. I think what we are seeing from his profile is the potential to be an everyday shortstop or second baseman. I think in that offense with the Cardinals, there's a lot of counting stat opportunity for him. And ultimately, he had to break my top 100 because after hitting 306 with 26 home runs at the age of 21, I have to believe that this is a player that is going to get an opportunity in St. Louis. And he was someone that it took me probably up until September to push into my top 100. Yeah, he was also part of that 2020 draft, also taken in the fifth round. Nice. I don't, I don't know if he was taken ahead of Colt Keith or not. I don't have that in front of me. But maybe there's something, maybe some analysis could be looked into those fifth fifth round draftees from 2020 maybe we should start digging up some other ones and see where they're what they're doing um but i Segesi didn't really pop up on my radar in t- like i didn't really look into him i should say until he got traded i think it was jordan montgomery right that the rangers got in that deal yeah that sounds that sounds correct i think we're, that was correct didn't they do like t- anyways getting off track here but interesting to see what Segesi does i think we might see him next year it all depends, honestly, if the Cardinals are going to be competitive. Like, they were supposed to win the NL Central this year. They ended up taking, I think, last. Or did the Pirates end up beating them for last? But either way, they disappointed royally. So I expect a bounce back. I wouldn't be surprised if the Cardinals go out and get Aaron Nola in the offseason or get a, a few other pitchers to bolster out. But enough of that. Let's move on now to our Tier 4 um, breakouts, which we're going to lump this into the players that were drafted this year. So the players that really stuck out to us that, you know, as soon as they reached the minors, they just hit the cover off the ball. Matt, how about we do this? You, um, you take the first two, I'll take, or why don't you take the first one? I'll take the second, you do the third, I'll get the fourth, you get the last one or how do you want to break this? Yeah, that's fine. We'll just go, we'll just go one off. Um, for me, Colt Emerson, the next name on this list is the absolute highlight of our list, and most of you there should know this name, but Cole Emerson is the first one. And I think uh, the majority of people that are deep in fantasy have kind of watched the emergence. I mean, we're talking very small sample size for a lot of these guys because either coming out of high school and signing or coming out of college, teams were very safe and protective with how they pushed players or assigned players. And um, organizationally, you have different opinions too. Some organizations kept guys at double A or kept them at high A or didn't move them from A ball at all. Um, Colt Emerson coming out of high school, 18 years old. This is a shortstop prospect, 22 overall to the uh, Mariners. Absolutely big-time showcase of power. We have 109 exit velos coming out of Colt Emerson, 91 total at-bats, hit 374 with two home runs, so nothing crazy, Uh, eight stolen bases, 
11 walks, 14 strikeouts, showcasing that play, uh, patience, showcasing that eye at the plate. I'm looking for Emerson to possibly break top 10 lists midseason next year. Uh, I think this kid is going to be an absolute all-star, um, and I would kind of limp, lump him into like the Corey Seager profile here. Left-handed bat, good exit velos. He's going to develop into that body. This could be an absolute home run for the Mariners. Yeah, and the crazy thing with Colt Emerson is him being taken 22nd overall to Seattle is how many shortstops were taken ahead of him and how many were taken after him that projected to go anywhere in mock drafts. Like Colt Emerson, I think I saw on a mock draft, could have went as high as 11 or 12 and even fell to the second round. It just shows you how deep the shortstop position is. We'll talk about another one here coming up, Matt Shaw, who also broke out. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of these other shortstops from this first and second round kind of hit their groove next year. And I'm curious to see which ones pop for next year. Well, I'm going to jump in real quick. Uh, Just another name, just in the same organization in the same draft, Ty Pete. I mean, you have two players that could highlight as above average future big league shortstops allowing them you know the mass amount of trade potential and value from one draft class and both guys that i absolutely didn't love when the names got called i mean pete hit 283 over two levels two home runs uh six stolen bases 30 strikeouts to 10 walks so you know emerson did have a better rookie emergence in his first opportunity at the at the minor league level but both profiles that people really liked Taking both of these players in the first round, I think the Mariners, um, after draft night, you know, I didn't, I didn't consider them a winner. I think looking back now, and we'll have to look at organizations and just kind of see early results, but definitely two draft picks that I loved. I do like Emerson more than I like Pete, though. Yeah, I'll just give you a quick list that were just ranked higher than Colt Emerson. Jacob Gonzalez out of Mississippi. Tom Troy out of Stanford. Matt Shaw out of Maryland. Uh, Colin Houck out of Parkview, Georgia High School. Arjun Namala, Jacob Wilson, you know, <laughs> that's crazy in that a lot of those names are still very good. And one of them's on our list that we'll be talking about. Um, let's just skip our, let's just skip our, our rundown and just talk about Matt Shaw since we keep talking about yep. him. He was 16th overall on prospect boards, but he went 13th overall to the Chicago Cubs. And he's arguably had the best minor league season. He went from rookie all the way to double A, hitting 357 in 38 games, an OPS OPS of 1.018. Wow. He had eight home runs, which if you account for 157 at-bats in 38 games, that's amazing. Had 15 stolen bases, so he's got the speed as well. 28 RBIs, nine walks to 25 strikeouts. Yeah, you'd like to see him walk a little bit more, but you're not going to be complaining about those results. And Matt Shaw arguably could be talked about with the bats that are Dylan Cruz, Wyatt Langford, Walker Jenkins, Max Clark, that elite tier. Matt Shaw has an argument to be lumped in that group as well. Yeah, and I think Shaw's probably the only one in this draft over Emerson at the shortstop position that I'm taking over Emerson, as we just talked about. All those names that you listed off. Uh, and there were question marks coming into you know professional baseball with Shaw coming out of Maryland. He had the power. The question mark, was it the actual facility itself? Was it the field that Shaw was playing in? Was it the level of competition Shaw was playing in? The fields um, at Maryland are a little bit smaller. 
So some argued that because of those smaller porches, he had the opportunity to really rack up high power numbers. And we're seeing at the MILB level that that's just not the case. Eight home runs, as you said, 157 at-bats. It's the average as well. It's the speed at 15 stolen bases. I think what we're talking about here is, in hindsight, a mistake to have signed Dansby Swanson now that you have Matt Shaw in this organization because Matt Shaw is going to have no choice but to slide into that second or third base role unless they can find a suitor for Swanson or move Swanson off short. And Swanson's obviously a defensive first shortstop. So... Uh, I think that's a good problem to have. If you're great a problem to have, and and I think what we saw just from our early presentation of Shaw this season is this is not a player you trade down. This is, as you said, you can lump him in with some of the, some of the top three, four, five hitters in this draft, and I think now there's an argue, argument with you know Walker Jenkins, Matt Shaw, which was not going to be the case coming into this draft. You know Max Shaw. Um, or Matt Shaw, Max Clark, like these are going to be some debates going on over the next couple of years as we see some more of these numbers generate for us. But definitely a fantastic season, uh, fantastic breakout. I think other than Wyatt Langford, he had the absolute best showcasing. Um, and I think Wyatt's the next guy that you're going to talk about here. Yeah, before we move on, uh, I just want to mention, I was talking to one of our Dynasty League mates who's a Cubs fan, and I remember when they signed Dansby Swanson, he was so pissed because he initially wanted them to go out and get Trey Turner. Then he signed with the Phillies, Trey Turner, that is. Then he's like, okay, the next best is Carlos Correa. Then Correa went to the Mets, and then that fell through, and then he went back to the Twins, and he was just so mad that they didn't get anybody, and they ended up with Dansby Swanson. In hindsight, it's 2020, but that might have been the best thing for him outside of Trey Turner's uh, the Cubs landing Dansby Swanson because they didn't have to pay as much as Carlos Correa and Trey Turner and got a valuable player in him and now they get Matt Shaw so I think it works out let's move on to the next person who you and I fought over to get in our dynasty league and that is Wyatt Langford 21 he was the fourth overall draft pick went to the Texas Rangers and he tore the cover off the ball he went from high A all the way to triple A for the Texas Rangers. He had 161 at-bats, batted 360 with 10 home runs, 30 RBIs, and put up 12 stolen bases. All that with having more walks and strikeouts, 36 walks to 34 strikeouts. I don't think it gets any better for uh, a player hitting the pro league or pro ball for the very first time. Wyatt Langford has the most helium out of anybody in this draft class. Um, that's that's I wouldn't be shocked to see him on opening day next year. Yeah, and I think you look at overall profile for Wyatt Langford, and that's the case. He is ready. I think he could have been a postseason addition this season. Problem is we kind of talked off air before we jumped on today, and the truth is that organization has a lot of pieces currently that have been productive this year and have provided them with talent coming into the playoffs. So I understand why Wyatt wasn't brought up. I understand why he's not on the postseason roster. Evan Carter clearly doing the job as a rookie right now, providing that spark. But I do look for Wyatt Langford next year to be in that starting outfield. Um, and you're talking about Evan Carter, Wyatt Langford, Ortiz. We kind of profiled a little bit earlier. This team has a lot of really young, exciting, cheap players that are going to be providing starter value. And I think with Langford, you're going to be talking about you know all-star value potentially with what he's done in the minor leagues this season. And I think he showcased that him and Matt Shaw were the most major league ready coming out of this draft. You know, I think two, three weeks in, we were looking at Dylan Cruz and saying, "Oh my God, this is this is the next Mike Trout." But again, Dylan Cruz was really lighting up rookie A ball, high A. As soon as he moved up to Double A, we started to see some of the struggles from Dylan Cruz. <clears throat> so that allowed Shaw and Langford to kind of jump ahead in these 
classifications of who is the most ready, but Langford definitely has the power. Um, but more importantly, 36 walks, 34 strikeouts, more walks than strikeouts, 141 at-bats. It got to a point where I would just have to imagine without watching the games that pitchers just decided not to throw him strikes. And when they did throw him strikes, batting 360 with 10 home runs, he took advantage of that. And then even more importantly, 12 stolen bases. So Langford and Cruz, the debate was that you're going to get more of an all-around player with Cruz, and Langford is going to be more of that power player, more of that power profile. And it'll be interesting to see, is he going to be a guy that can hit 30 to 40 home runs while also providing 20 stolen bases, 15 stolen bases? It's a lot different profile than I think I thought coming into um, their performances, which was Wyatt Langford's 30 to 40 with five to 10. And I know it's only you know 10 to 20 more stolen bases potentially, but that's a lot when you're talking about a categories league. All right. I'll give you a Wyatt Langford for junior Caminero. Okay, <laughs> Wyatt Langford for, uh, who do I have? Uh, Jared Jones deal done. Jared Jones. All right. All right. Let's move on to the next guy. I think it's your turn. It's a pitcher who you like, you have him on your dynasty league as well. Let you dive into him. Yeah. Well, I kind of got lucky. You know, we, we covered the draft. We looked at some names that we really liked. Um, next player for us is Hurston Waldrop for the Braves 21, uh, starting pitcher, 24th overall in this this year's draft. He pitched an A ball, high A, double A, and was moved up to triple A. You and I kind of kept close eyes on him because we had question marks coming out of Florida. Could he actually be a starting pitcher with really only the one dominant pitch, which was the splitter? And I think right off the bat, two weeks in, you and I knew he's going to be a guy. Got drafted by the right organization, being the Braves, who have proven over and over and over to develop these young arms. Eight games, 29 total innings, coming again out of a college season. So I think that in itself was a little aggressive as well. Uh, 41 total strikeouts, a 1-1-9 whip, and only 16 walks. Um, And I say only 16 walks because I think another thing we were concerned about was the control. 16 walks in 29 innings isn't something that you get really excited about. But for Hurston Waldrop, for me, it is exciting because it means they may be starting to reel him in. I think this could be a player very similar to Smith Shaver, to Strider, who possibly is in this rotation middle of next season. And I absolutely would not be shocked if he starts the season in that rotation. It would be a surprise, but it is the Braves. They have made very aggressive moves with some of these young pitchers. Um, and I think out of the Smith Shaver, Strider, I think I would probably take Waldrip number two in that classification. Yeah, a few things I'll say on Waldrip is one, if I was in rebuilding, you wouldn't have been able to get him. And I was very upset because I just didn't have the roster space to go and get him. He was one of the pitchers I wanted to grab. So kudos to you. He shouldn't have been out there as long as he was. Uh, the other thing is I think his peak projection is something similar to Blake Snell. High strikeouts, high walks. Yeah, that's good. I don't, I don't think we're going to see him going seven, eight innings. I think you're going to get five innings out of him at his peak. And if he goes six innings, you're going to be more than happy with that. But I think you're going to be good with two to three walks any given outing. Um, His 16 walks in 29 and a third innings was pretty much about what I expected out of him. Um, So I don't have any one-way feeling about his control is about what I expected. I'm curious. I don't have that information, but I'm curious to see if he leaned in on the splitter in these um, outings in his first debut in the minor leagues, or if he was just blowing guys away with his fastball. Because I think his fastball can touch triple digits, if I'm not mistaken, but it doesn't have the greatest shape. 
if I remember correctly, I might be getting him confused with Paul Skeens, which is very reasonable. But yeah, he throws 95 to 99 on a good day. So at the lower levels, that high fastball um, can blow hitters away. I'd just be curious to see what that breakdown is, and I don't have that. But I do think the sky's the limit for Waldrop. I'm excited. I'm curious if he makes opening day roster. I do think the Braves go out and they sign somebody, whether it's Aaron Nola, I keep bringing him up, or a Jordan Montgomery or somebody else. I feel like if you're the Braves, you have to. You've got a lot of these young guys on cheap extensions, and you fell apart because of your pitching this past postseason. I feel like you have to. Well, right? and I, I I agree with you, and that's something I think we'll we'll look into when we do an organization organizational breakdown for them. Um, I would agree. Bring a bring a veteran starter in, but I think with Waldrip, like following the Strider move almost might be the way to go because you know you have a dominant strikeout pitcher who has showcased the ability to get outs, keep a low ERA in the minor leagues, bring him up for three, four, five months and give him that Strider approach. And then, you know, come end of July, start him into the rotation. And I think that that proved last year to be, or two years ago to be very successful as Strider. And you have a similar profile with, with Hurston where it's like he is that dominant one pitch with a good fastball and let him get to the major league level and start developing some of his other arsenal, some of his other pitch mix. Uh, I would love to see that where he is just, you know, a, a dominant bullpen arm. I think a lot of, uh, of things have to play out. And I think, like you said, it depends. Do they sign one starter? Do they sign two starters? Or do they just go into next season with the same approach where we have five, six, seven, eight guys that can start? We're just going to let things shake out. Um, I, I would like to see him have more of a defined role moving forward. Yeah. I'd be curious. I wouldn't be surprised if he is a bullpen arm. Let's move on to the last um, breakout that we have here. And I was teetering with this one, but I wanted to bring him up just because he is on our team. Being the Milwaukee Brewers, you know, we got to go with the homer pick here. And that's Brock Wilkin, first round draft pick. And I remember the night of the draft, I was so mad that we didn't take Braden Taylor because of his hit tool. And they went with Brock Wilkin because of his power tool. And then I remembered, you know, he's going to be playing in American Family Field when he gets up there, so maybe the power is not a bad thing. But the thing that surprised me is he bet at 285 while going from rookie ball to high A and then to double A. So he showcased um, being able to handle the lower league or lower levels of the minors and produce the average, all while putting up five home runs. Doesn't sound that great, but... Um, when you compare it to guys like Wyatt Langford, who at 10, yeah, that's the max. Matt Shaw, I think he had eight when we mentioned it, so five, not too far off. I did like that he had 33 walks to 47 strikeouts, and here's the kicker. He even got in four stolen bases, which I was not expecting him to be a stolen base threat at all when we drafted him. So he's definitely blown away my expectations as a first-round draft pick for the Milwaukee Brewers. Well, and, and there's so many little variables to put into this, right? The Brewers drafting at 18. All right, you miss out on Shaw at 13. You miss out at Langford. You were never getting Langford. I think you were going to be lucky to get Shaw. And we kind of talked about Colt Emerson earlier at 18, going 22nd overall. Doesn't really fit where the Brewers' current timeline is at. And I think the most disappointing thing with uh, Brock Wilkin is that you look at the organization, we're going from a very pitching-dominant profile to what the new emerging players on this Milwaukee Brewers team is going to be. It's going to be more of an offensive-minded team with um, Woodruff being potentially done for his career with the capsule surgery. Uh, that's a side note, but that's a possible 18-month injury he's going to have to fight through. 
um, which is just ridiculous. And then Corbin Burns, this being his last season in Milwaukee coming up in the 2024 season, Wilkin won't be up until probably 2025. Maybe they push him midseason next year if he continues to dominate. But they hit they hit a home run here. Um, and this was a guy that you and I spoke about before the draft that I actually really wanted coming out of Wake Forest because we have lacked that third base power and consistency for so long now, almost as long as I can remember being a Brewer fan. Uh, the only one that comes to mind is um, Ramirez that used to play in Chicago for a number of years. We had at least some stability. So I think Wilkin will finally provide this infield some stability at third base. I think the Brewers got a guy that can be a possible all-star, can provide power. And I wouldn't be surprised for him to be as 260, 270 maybe in his prime with emerging 30 to 40 home run power. And I think that's the profile and the comp people have been giving him lately is the um, the Austin Riley comp, which Taking him at 18, that's an absolute home run. Um, really like Wilkin. Love the first couple of weeks that we saw, and I really, really like the swing. That was something you and I spoke about off air when he was started to, to hit the minors was the swing looks really nice. Um, it has a very similar bat path to Mike Trout. Can really handle the lower pitches. Uh, I want to see as next year hits off how he's able to handle the pitchers up in the zone. Yeah, I'm excited to see how he develops. Let's move on now to our tier five breakout category, and that is all the players from the DSL. There's been a lot of up and down players here, some players that we we thought were going to be the next Ronald Acuna's, the next Juan Soto's, and then they fizzled out, had a little hot streak like Sebastian Walcott, and then pretty much just fell off. Um, Walcott, by the way, is probably still on a lot of top 100s. I don't know if I'm necessarily going to keep him in my top 100. I haven't finished yet. Yet to be decided. Here I am going on a tangent, but let's go ahead, Matt. I'll let you. I'll let you start us off with your first DSL player. Yeah, and uh, we kind of ran through the lists. Uh, we kind of tried to find different profiles. There's a couple guys that we've been following this year, which is uh, Jeffrey Rosa and Kevin Hidalgo. We'll get to those names in a minute. First one, though, we're going to start off in the uh, Angels organization. They do need a bright spot, and I think again, this is DSL, but this is an 18-year-old catching prospect. Uh, I'm going to pronounce it Kev- Kevian Castillo. Um, Mr. Castillo, I'm sorry. I'm still learning your DSL. I, I will try by next year to have this nailed down. Uh, catching <laughs> prospect, as I had mentioned, 17% walk rate to a 15% strikeout rate, which is something I really am looking for in the DSL in the complex. Uh, can you walk more than you're striking out against some of this really below average pitching um, talent? And again, these pitchers are they're finding their zone as well, literally pun intended. Three home runs, uh, batted 371 in 234 plate appearances, really showed that bat-to-ball ability, showed the ability to take the walk, uh, really like what we're seeing. This is a catching prospect to monitor, as well as positionally, does he get moved off the catching uh, spot? Um, this is something, again, from the Angels organization to like, trading away a very, very good catching prospect uh, this season in Cuero. I think this is a guy that could come in line and possibly back up Logan Ohapi of the future. Yeah, I don't know too much about Kevin Castillo, but with the numbers he's putting up, definitely somebody who is now on my radar, Um, not compared to the next person, Jeffrey Rosa, who's been on our radar all year long, just been (laughs) dominating at the DSL. I will point out that he is 19, but even still, I still think 17, 18, and even 19 at the DSL, it is still um, notable when you hit 15 home runs and you lead the pack. You have a 452 Woba. You know, you got an OPS over 1,000. Um, 9% walk rate to 24% strikeout rate. Not the greatest, but, you know, still learning. 392 ISO. Love to see that. He's got the power. I think 
he's got a little bit of developing average sits at 277 i know earlier in the season he was well above 300 so that's tapered off a little bit but definitely somebody who's got the power and on a rebuilding new york mets team somebody i could see as a riser yeah rose has been a guy i've loved all year um the when we finally looked at the end of season numbers i was very very concerned with that strikeout rate i kind of talked about it with castillo i would really like to see these guys walk either um equal amounts or more so than they strike out and Rose is in the opposite direction there with 24% strikeout rate to the 9% walk rate uh, hammered the the absolute DSL. I mean, 15 home runs was fantastic. Uh, his ISO was what I've been tracking this season on MILB tracker. I've been really looking at some of these ISO performers. He was the guy that always was at the top with this next individual we're about to talk about, but um, there is concerns there. Strikeouts. We're going to have to see how those strikeouts continue to develop as he gets a little bit older. Normally, what we're seeing in the DSL over the last couple of years that we have data that we've been following is that the guys that are really, really big mashers don't necessarily show that strikeout issue early on. Um, it's just in their profile. And as they get to A ball, as they get to high A and then double A, you really start to see those strikeouts uptick. So Rosa having it early is of concern. Um, but again, you said it, 19 years old. He did turn 19 in September. So we'll give him this 18-year-old season. Yeah, we'll give him a break. We'll um, give him a break. Next name, though, is probably the one I'm most excited about. We talked about it in, in pre-recording prep. That's Kevin Hidalgo for the Colorado Rockies. Shortstop, 18 years old. Had two different DSL lines, which I'm still very confused on. I don't necessarily understand the DSL fully yet. So he had... Two different stat lines from the DSL. We will get back at a later date on what that means. It was um, broken down at one point, but I can't remember. It was like summer versus, I want to say it's like broken down into like two different leagues, kind of like the Cape Cod and the regular league for college or something okay. like that. So I could be wrong. But well, ever and, since they changed the format, I, I'm a little bit confused as well. And his lines were very different. It was, you know, 80, 90% of his games at one line and then a, a very small percentage at the other line. He did very, very well in one line, did not perform very well in the other. And everyone else that I saw that split line for was almost the exact, uh, the exact same. So I'll have to look into that more. But um, Hidalgo, 12% walk rate, 19% strikeout rate, a little more reasonable than Rosa. Had 12 home runs and 239 plate appearances. Again, back to that ISO, ranked at the very near top of the DSL and ISO. Uh, and this is a guy I think after looking at Rosa and Hidalgo is probably my number one DSL player, Kevin Hidalgo, shortstop. And the Rockies themselves have a number of shortstop prospects that have been rising up boards this season. This is definitely a name I want to look into next year, uh, keep an eye on. And from a guard perspective, I think Hidalgo is a guy that I would be jumping on right now and, and seeing where that value is. Yeah, we should look on eBay real quick. Um, I just took a look on MLB Pipeline. They don't even have Hidalgo in the top 30 for the Rockies, which seems bizarre to me, but what do I know? All right, let's move on to the next one, and that is Franklin Lopez, Colorado Rockies prospect as well. Catcher, 18 years old, 5% walk rate to 12% strikeout rate. But what we like here is the 426 average in his 125 plate appearances. So not the biggest sample size, but he did have six home runs. So whenever you play in that Colorado ballpark for the future, definitely name to keep an eye out and keep on your radar. Yeah, and and again, you know, this is this is early ramifications for some of these players that we're looking at and trying to get ahead of next year when they are hitting a ball and they're hitting high A where we can really keep our eyes on them in dynasty leagues, especially you can start to trade for some of these players now because they are just in the DSL, maybe even moving just a complex next year. 
But as you said, 426 average, I think that in general is showcasing bat to ball. Um, 5% walk rate, 12% strikeout, not enough data there. The six home runs, just uh, overall the profile is something to be encouraged by. And I think uh, with our next name, it's the same thing with just Steven Flores. Again, Steven, I hope it's Steven. The the spelling is S-T-I-V-E-N. White Sox, 17 years old, another catching prospect. So these catchers are really coming through in the DSL this year. 10% walk rate, 5% strikeout rate, only one home run. But the reason he's on our list is because he hit 391 in 147 plate appearances. I think that, you know, that's average. That's going to translate probably into the lower levels. What we need to watch is does the power come? Again, only 17 years old. Again, my dog is uh, very, very <laughs> playful right now. Uh, hey, whenever we, we record, she uh, just wants attention, and I apologize. But uh, Flores was kind of the last name I wanted to add to the list because him and Castillo were guys at the top of that average list. Uh, and then you look at the strikeout ability of Flores, where as opposed to Castillo, he was at 15%. Flores at 5%, I think, really showcases the bat's ball. But also Flores, in comparison to Castillo, only 147 plate appearances. So we're going to really need to start to see more data on Flores. But at 17 years old and a 391 average, I had to toss him on this list. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, There is one more name. I was just doing some digging in. Rainier Arias of the San Francisco Giants Giants, at the DSL. He's He's leading the league in OPS for DSL at... 1332 which is nuts anything over a thousand is uh, well above what is his plate appearances this season uh only 76 i did it i did at 50 not 100 because i just wanted to toy around with something but still he uh i want to because he tore the cover off for a period of like two or three weeks and and i want to say then we didn't hear anything else so there had to have been an injury um but he was only 17 too he was a name that was i think they spent some good money on him as well do you have his signing bonus in front of you um, I don't, but I can get it for you real quickly. Yeah, because t- he was because he signed this year, didn't he? Yeah, he was a power. He was a power profile player. He was one of the. Yeah, he was um, signed out of the Dominican Republic. He was fifteenth on the rankings. He signed. I want to say it was like three million, one point seven. Either way, he's a player as you dig. He's a player that I really like. We just didn't get enough data on him. Uh, Park obviously is a factor in this. But we saw Mateo get called up this year, absolutely dominate at AAA and didn't necessarily translate. I think Arias has the body profile to really provide value to that Giants team. Again, we just need to see more games played. I would expect next year for Arias to possibly be complex, if not uh, A-ball, rookie ball. Yeah, um, the quick the quick um, comp profile is to Eloy Jimenez, yep. but with a better baseball IQ. Well, I really also <laughs> hope his injury slider isn't at like – 17 um you know isn't the same injury prone as Eloy Jimenez well and while you look that up um you know we'll just touch on Walcott a little bit to to wrap our DSL breakdown Walcott obviously blew through boards this season you know he was a guy that we kind of were fighting on and waiting for him to hit our dynasty ESPN player pool and then really slowed down I think he's still, at least for me personally, is going to remain on my top 100. Um, I have Drew Jones still on my top 100. I look at some of these body profiles. I look at what they were originally comped to be, and I hold out hope that maybe they just take a little bit longer to develop. And I think Walcott's a guy that had shown the performance on the field. You just kind of have to get that to be more consistent and really uh, steer him in, as well as we don't understand that some of these players may be working on things once they showcase ability on the field to completely change their profile so that they can work on other things. For Walcott, it may have been that he was struggling with a certain pitch type, and they said, okay, 
only swing at that singular pitch. Uh, these are things we've talked about at all different levels, but from an organizational perspective, numbers can range pretty drastically based off what organizations are encouraging the player to do. So Arias signed for $2.7 million, and he did suffer a sprained wrist on June 30th, and they opted to just shut him down for the season. Yep, sounds about right. Um, he was down significantly and was carted off, which Ooh. I don't know why he would be carted off with a sprained wrist, but what do I know? Maybe just playing it safe. Who knows? Um, okay, enough of that. Let's move on now to the start of our AL East risers and fallers. We're going to go down through the Baltimore Orioles, and no shocker here, we don't have any fallers. Every <laughs> one of their prospects were risers. Um, I don't know how many we want to go through, but I think we got to start it off with Jackson Holiday. He was being compared to Drew Jones, you know, second fiddle to Drew Jones coming into this year. Drew Jones suffers the horrible labrum tear um and jackson holiday takes advantage he goes from low a to high a to double a to triple a and becomes the number one overall prospect in all of baseball hitting 323 with a 442 obp 499 slug he had 30 doubles nine triples 12 home runs and 24 stolen bases is there anything this kid can't do i mean he still looks like a child at 14 and throughout the season, we were look, we've compared photos and videos, and it looks like he's just adding muscle as the season goes on. He's starting to fill out that frame, and yeah, I'm I'm excited for this next superstar to reach the majors by the end of the year next year. Yeah, I mean, there's not much we have to say about Jackson Holiday's 2023 season. Um, I, I love the fact that you mentioned the overall body changes that we saw, him putting on weight, really starting to find define the body. My big question mark for him, especially watching a lot of the minor league highlights, was really where are these hits going to fall? A lot of what I saw this year were hits to the, the shortstop gaps where I think a major league shortstop makes the play, gets the out, Jackson gets on, the th he overthrows the ball, Jackson's on second, really kind of alluding to Jackson's ability to put up those runs classifications that we saw this year. As the body develops, as the power starts to come, how do those hits start looking? Are they no longer blue pits? Are they no longer soft contact hits? Are they line drives? Do we start him really st like starting to see power in the gaps? And I think that's really going to be really crucial, especially playing in Baltimore with the bigger field, because it's really going to open the door for him to have a lot more triples, a lot more doubles, um, and then ultimately you know, hitting it over the, the tall wall in right field, a shorter wall, definitely better for a left-handed hitter than a right-handed hitter. We're going to talk about a right-handed hitter for the organization here in a little bit, but um, overall loved holiday season. I think we're talking about, as you said, maybe a generational talent. I need to see how the body develops. Does he become a guy that's, you know, not so much 180, 190, but 220 and is going to have to move to third base. It's going to have to move to the outfield. Is this a guy that's just, you know, we don't know what the body at the end of the day is going to be yet. And that is my concern because, we're kind of comping him out right now as a major league shortstop or at least a major league second baseman. But if you put on the weight, if you add a couple inches, this could be a player that we're talking about as a corner uh, infielder or a corner outfielder with possibly 30 to 40 home run power. And I say that because of his father. Uh, and I, I've just seen the body changes this season where I am assuming we're going to see more changes. But overall, what we're seeing so far is the 3-4, essentially 5 slash line hitting 499 with his slug. 24 stolen bases. Uh, I mean, this was just a masterful season. And I, th I think other than Junior Comanero, probably the best season in the minor leagues. I would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on now to another prospect who 
kind of was a diamond in the rough coming into the season and then just really took off in those last couple months. That is Samuel Basalo, catcher for the Orioles, spent most of his season at single A, 83 games, batted 299, but his ascension didn't really take off until he went to high A in 27 games, batted 333, and cranked eight home runs compared to his 12 that he had in those 83 games at uh, low A. So he put 20 home runs on the season with eight of them coming in those last 27 games. He really blew up then once he went to double A for four games and batted 467. He put himself on the map. Um, I think I was telling you off the air in one of the Twitter feeds, there is one of the analysts putting together uh, a best performance at each position and Sam Basalo beat out Ethan Salas for best catcher of the year or best performance catcher of the year. So very excited to see what we get out of Sam Basalo moving forward. I'm also a little bitter because I looked for him on ESPN and I was spelling him Samuel Basalo and ESPN has him as Sam Basalo. So I didn't think he was in the player pool. And then about a week later, you picked him up, Matt. So I'm not bitter at all about that. <laughs> well, and and we did a very good job this season of highlighting players that were breaking out um, up until uh, we kind of talked up until about like end of July, early August. And for Basalo, it was really a second half breakout. You know, Yankeel Fernandez was a guy that I really liked early in the first half, almost opposite tails there. Fernandez had a terrible second half. Basalo absolutely started rising up these boards. Um, and there's only another name. I think the only other player from the catching position, possible first base um, equivalent, because I think Basalo is probably a first baseman moving forward in his professional career. Was a, a, I'm going to butcher this, but uh, Thyron Lizardo for the Dodgers, also 20 years old, so a little bit older than Basalo. Um, these two players, in my opinion, I'm going to watch and monitor heavily because both kind of came on late in the season. I had saw Lizardo on a top 100 list, and I didn't even know who he was. And I, I think that's the importance of keeping attention spans late in the year to watch where some of these young players kind of it clicks for them. Um, at 19 and 20 years old for both of these players, but especially Basalo. You're seeing him all the way at double A now. We could see a Jackson Holiday type season from him next year when he already put together a very, very good campaign. We could see Basalo pushing major leagues next year. And I think these are probably the only two players with this, in this organization that for me are untouchable. Uh, we have a couple of more names that we're going to talk about here, but these two players are cornerstone pieces. I think the next name you're going to speak on is as well, but I think he's movable because of the pieces at hand. But Basalo and Holiday are organizational tentpoles. Yeah, realistically, I don't see the Orioles moving any of these guys because of how cheap they'll be, and mm -hmm. the Orioles are a smaller market team. So I just really don't see them moving these pieces, even though they should um, get some of that veteran presence in the dugout. You could see it in this postseason when they got swept. I think it was by the Rangers, if I'm not mistaken, but it just seemed like they lacked any of that veteran presence besides Aaron Hicks, who it's Aaron Hicks. They didn't have yeah. a Corey Seager or Bruce Bochy or, um, you know, uh, who am I forgetting? Well, you, uh, Semyon, right? You know, yeah, even, Semyon, even Nate Lau, like Mitch Garver. Yep. Yeah. Like, the list goes on and on. But either way, we're getting distracted here. Kobe Miles is the next player on our list. He cracks, I think, number 13 on my overall prospects. 
He went from double-A AA to triple-A, batted overall 290 across both levels. He had 29 runs, love to see that. 93 walks to 148 strikeouts, so that's reasonable. Five stolen bases, you're not going to expect a lot out of that. But you mentioned that he could be movable because they do have Gunnar Henderson at the cornerstone. I would take Gunnar Henderson over Kobe Mayo, but definitely a great prospect and on the rise and outperformed his expectations as a fourth-round 2020 draft pick. Well, and I mean, I'm looking at his line right now, and it's almost un... um, What's the word I'm looking for? It's almost undistinguishable between him and and Heath. You look at Heath, the 507 at-bats... Uh, Mayo had 504, 290 to 306, 29 home run. I mean, they're, they're almost the same profile. And obviously, one's a righty, one's a lefty. And I think that's where it really hurts Mayo from our classification here. Mine personally is he's a right-handed hitter in Baltimore. And we've seen that how that really negatively impacts the fantasy game, even for the power hitters. Now, Mayo's power is prodigious but you're still going to lose home runs to that left field wall. There's no way around it. Sure, you might be able to get a double or a triple out of it, but Mayo's speed isn't something he's really known for, much like we talked about it with Heath. Uh, but I, I do think this is a player that probably ends up at first base, probably ends up as a top, I'm going to go ahead and say top five first baseman in his prime for a number of years. And if he happens to stay at third, this is going to be like Heath, one of the players in that top 10 classification. The problem is playing time. Gunnar Henderson is going to be the third baseman. Does Mayo go ahead and get pushed to first? And then what do you do with Pasalo? Because you have Adelie Rutschman. And I think that's the big issue that we're having with this organization and have had all year when we were very excited for them to make some deals at the deadline was because we thought we'd see some clarity. We don't have any clarity at all. We've got seven infielders that all should start. We've got 11 outfielders, all that should start. Um, And this organization is going to have to find how do you get these players in the lineup so that they continue to develop and if not, you're going to start to stint development. And I think we're going to see that with Kauser, who we're going to talk about in a little bit here. Um, next name up, though, is Heston Kerstad, 24 years old, outfield first base. Um, more predominantly outfield right now. He was number two overall in 2020. Had a number of injuries that really impacted his development. Finally started to break out last year. Arizona Fall League MVP, if I remember correctly. Uh, over 122 games, 479 at-bats, hit 303. The 376 on base percentage, 528 slug, 28 doubles, 21 home runs, 42 walks, and 100 strikeouts. Uh, this is a player we're excited about, but I think this is just going to be an average to above average outfielder. What do you think? Yeah, I think he is going to be your standard replace replacement level outfielder. I think you can expect anywhere from 260 to 275 batting average. Think with the right amount of plate appearances, gets you around 20 home runs, gets you close to 15 stolen bases. Um, Pretty average. I think we see him in a platoon role with all of the outfielders that they have. Definitely a matchup play. I do like to see that he came back from myocarditis. Um, Yeah, not much more else to say on Heston Kirsten. I do think that he is a better player and long-term projection over Colton Kowser, even though Kowser reached the majors ahead of him. Yeah, and I'm going to jump in here. Uh, I'm not even going to list off Kowser's numbers because it just doesn't matter. Uh, Full season at AAA got brought up. You talked about Aaron Hicks a little bit earlier. We were calling. Why are you starting Aaron Hicks? You have Colton Kowser ripping up AAA. 23 years old, fifth overall pick in 2021. He needs to be the guy starting over Aaron Hicks. 
And well, we saw how that went. Colton Kowser did not fare well at the major league level. Um, and I think Kowser's profile for me is that of a poor man's Brandon Roberts and I, Brian Roberts, and I've said that about a lot of players this year, but I really do feel like Kowser with his 17 home runs at AAA, nine stolen bases, can be a 15 to 20 home run major league player with you know 10 stolen bases, 15 stolen bases, and have a 270 to 290 average. The problem is, will the Orioles continue to pull him out of the lineup for Kerstad, who has more power? Um, and I think you're right. I think there's more projectability and there's more upside with uh, with Colton uh, or with with Hessen Kerstad as opposed to Colton Kowser. But I think Colton Kowser on I think the Brewers is a great example. I think I would take Kowser over Sal Frelick. What are your thoughts? Take Kowser over Sal Frelick. Mm, I think I'm going Frelick over. Really? Kowser. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Maybe defensively, defensively, Frelick is. I mean, he has seven to twelve catches this year that we just. Our you know I got dropped. a soft spot. You know I got a soft spot for those shorties. <laughs> you know I do. <laughs> um, all right, we got one more name that we have highlighted, and then we're gonna rip off a couple names to be uh, to just yeah, talk about. We don't have to go too far, but the next one is their first overall draft pick for the Baltimore Orioles, taken 17th overall. That is Enrique Redfield, arguably the best uh, run tool out of this entire draft class. Gets an 80 out of 80 grades. So. Love that. Incredible. 50-40, I think. I was comparing him to, oh, God, I'm blanking now. Billy uh, Hamilton. Uh, since, yeah, Billy Hamilton. Yep. Um, Billy Hamilton with a little bit more pop. He did go from rookie ball to high A. Once he reached high A, only five games, batted 118, but I'll give him a pass. <laughs> Overall, he batted 291. He had zero home runs, but 25 stolen bases in 25 games. So when he reaches the majors, you can expect 162 stolen bases. No sarcasm there at all. Um, but the thing I liked the most about him um, was the 26 walks to 16 strikeouts. So he's got the plate discipline, and I love to see that. Um, I wish he had some power, but, you know, you'll take what you can get. Well, and, you know, we're starting to see the change because of the rules. Victor Scott's a name that we really like as well that we're going to get to once we get to the St. Louis Cardinals organization. Um, Enrique Bradfield is a guy coming out of the draft in Vanderbilt. So a good school where he had to face good competition where you were kind of like, oh, is he just going to be another 220 hitter that just steals bases? And I don't think that's going to be the case. I think personally, out of all the outfielders that we just talked about, which was just three of them, Connor Norby, throw him into this list as well because he's played more outfield. Um, Brad Bradfield is a guy that you absolutely have to make an everyday starter, in my opinion. He is a spark at the top of the lineup. He provides the stolen base ability that you just mentioned. 473 OBP this season in only 79 uh, at-bats, but that's pretty fantastic as you had highlighted that walk-to-strikeout ratio. This, for me, is a starting Major League everyday player because of what he brings with the new rule changes. Um, I think out of, obviously, Holiday, Basalo, and Mayo, he's probably my most exciting player that we did not mention from this draft class. Yeah. Yeah, I think we didn't mention him because we knew we were talking about him. Yep. But yep. he would have been on this list. For sure. All right, I'm going to quickly run down some of the other notable prospects they have that have been rising. Joey Ortiz, Connor Norby, Dylan Beavers, and Chase McDermott, who is a pitcher. Uh, Braylon Tavera, Trace Bright, and Moises Chase. All great players. I feel like this farm system can't do any wrong at this point. Let's see if we can find any fallers on this list. Nope, maybe Kate Povich. <laughs> uh, Povich is maybe the only one, and it's just because from where we were analyzing him to where he is now, I mean, I think we were looking at him, he was like a 374, 375 
ended with a five. Um, I was high on Povich yeah. at the beginning of the year, and yeah. I liked what I was seeing out of him, the strikeout rate, the walk rate, but he kind of unraveled here a little bit at the end. So, Cade Povich, you are the winner as our the faller fire. for the Baltimore Orioles. Congratulations. You get a participation trophy Well, and uh, with all the other kids and cry in the corner. The only two, <laughs> the only thing I want to mention here, Joey Ortiz, Connor Norby, guys that I think in other organizations would be major league players right now, um, they are very, very thin at pitching. And Chase McDermott, as well as Trace Bright, two guys that had nice seasons, um, Trace Bright, especially with the K per nine, McDermott more with the ERA and then the strikeout ability. I think these are two bullpen arms, in my opinion, personally. I think McDermott might be able to crack a fifth rotational spot because he has that strikeout performance. But if there is something to look for in this organization, it's the fact that they do not have pitching. Um, and we have said this multiple times on other shows. This is the perfect opportunity to call up the Miami Marlins and say, hey, we've got some bats. You've got some pitchers. Let's make some swaps. Because if this team wants to do anything in the postseason, we saw it this year, they have to bring in pitching. And Grayson Rodriguez is just not going to be enough. McDermott's not a guy that's going to back that up. So um, these last hey, few they names. Got, they got Kyle Bradish. They're all good to go. You know, yeah, it's plus, plus stuff, right? Stuff plus, however you want to put it. That's, uh, it falls is, apart in the postseason. That's all you need. He's not a playoff pitcher. But, yeah, overall, <laughs> um, this I think this is our best organization that we're going to go over. Um, some some real high end, and I would I'm going to throw it out there: some future Hall of Fame potential players. Oh, um, and I think that's what we look for. But if there's a downside, it is definitely the pitchers. Yeah, I would agree with that. So a lot to break down. Um, we went over a lot. I think what we'll do for the next show is continue to go over the AL East prospects, risers and fallers. And then hopefully by the time we're done with that, we've got some AFL to go over. And, um, yeah, we'll have a lot of off-season content for you guys this year. Yeah, so we'll make up for those couple of missed months. Yeah, know, we'll and... make up for those last few months. But <laughs> <laughs> until then, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Give us a five-star review. Tell, us, uh, tell all your friends about us, and uh, let's get some traction going. Until Hell then, we'll yeah. talk to you guys next time. Peace.